Uh, it's one thing I always say to students often at school here, if you can understand God, you're probably smarter than him, all right? Which is, uh, I think that's pretty logical. Um, you're not smarter than God and I'm not smarter than him, so it would actually stand to reason that you get to things in the Bible where you just kind of go, what the heck is going on there, right? And this is a bit of a what the heck is going on there kind of moment, right? But here's the thing. God thinks this is really important for you to know. So he had it written down, <laughs> all right? So at the end of the day, um, the really cool thing about preaching through a book of the Bible is you just preach through the whole book, all right? So when you get to a passage that's a bit difficult, it just means you need to spend more time on it. And there probably, in a lot of passages, there's still going to be a bit of mystery at the end of it, true? And you're just the really difficult ones. I mean, I was talking to some students about the Trinity the other day, you know, and they're just going, well, how do you have three but only one? Said, yeah, exactly, all right? You're not that smart and I'm not that smart and God's very, very smart. Um, so, well, maybe I just insulted you, but you get what I'm saying, don't you? The, the best mental ability we've got um, is it's really not that great. So uh, I might pray and uh, then we'll get to work, hey? Uh, God, thank you so much for writing things down, for inspiring people to, uh, to write things down and for, for preserving your word. And uh, so, God, I pray that you'd help us to understand it today. I pray that we'd uh, go away from it um, refreshed and, and encouraged and enthused. And, God, I pray that you'd help me to make it clear today. Amen. When uh, I went to Bible college and uh, did some stuff on um, preaching sermons, did some study on preaching sermons, uh, what they actually uh, did is they, they taught us two things. There's two um, main terms that you need to understand when it comes to preaching a sermon. So I'm just giving you like two minutes of preaching a sermon here, right? One of them is exegesis and one of them is hermeneutics, right? So the first on exegesis, and exegesis, you can exegete anything, all right? In fact, uh, biblical counselling says you need to exegete people. Exegeting something actually means looking at something in its particular context and understanding what it actually meant to the people in that particular context. That's what exegesis is. People do exegesis all over the place, all right? It's basically explaining what something means. Hermeneutics, on the other hand, is actually bringing the interpretation into today of what the exegesis is, all right? Now, the really cool thing about the Bible is a lot of times what you actually get is you get exegesis and hermeneutics kind of sit right on top of each other, okay? Which means that the meaning to the original hearers is pretty much the same meaning that you can interpret into our current context. Is everyone still with me? It's... It's, and it's really straightforward. Those passages are really straightforward. Every now and then you're going to get a passage that's like that, all right, where there's going to be a little kind of slice of it that kind of overlaps, all right, but there's a lot of it that doesn't. And sometimes you might even get a, a text in the Bible where you just kind of think, I just don't know how I'm going to bring a relevant 20th century interpretation of that text. And there's lots of genealogies that might fall into that context, although there's uh, into that area. But there's probably things that you can do with those too. The big problem, the writer of Hebrews is going to go on and talk about priests for a bit. And Hebrews 7 is all about priests, right? And the whole idea of priests is just a foreign concept to Australians, all right? So I'm going to tell you about you for a little bit, okay? Let me tell you what Australians are like. I did a little bit of research on this. And the reason why I did research is you don't notice what you like most of the time, culturally. All right? And all you've got to do, you can do it when you get home if you want, if you just go, what are, what's Australian culture like? Get onto some university websites and they'll actually tell you what 
Australian cultures like because they're foreign students. Let me tell you a few things. Australians are rebels, true? We came from convicts and we have, well, maybe not all of us, right? Some of you are sitting there going, now. Oh, I know a few people in this room that are cons. All right, but you came from convicts and you rebel against authority. That's kind of the Australian thing. We like to rebel against authority. In fact, one of our uh, most famous heroes is Ned Kelly, isn't it? What did he do? Well, he just wanted to kill people and steal stuff, all right? And somehow in the Australian psyche, we think that someone rebelling against authority is a really sweet thing. Um, a, a bit of a quote here from, uh, from Wikipedia it went like this about Australians. The mateship culture combined with the original convict and then colonial culture has created a, an irreverence for established authority, particularly if it is pompous or out of touch with reality. True? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at political parties, federal political parties, the, the greatest insult you can throw to a federal political party is they're getting arrogant and they're out of touch. All right? Australians don't like it. Uh, we are fiercely, fiercely in Australia, we're fiercely egalitarian. Everyone's kind of on the same level. If the Queen showed up here today, most of us probably would just automatically assume that you speak to her the same way that you'd speak to your next-door neighbour. All right? That's kind of the Australian thing. All right? We think everyone should be fair, uh, should be fairly treated. Everyone should get, here's another thing about Australian culture, everyone should get a fair go. True? It's all about a fair go. And you hear that line um, parroted in the media often. All right? Australians don't do protocol very well, do they? Like if you say there's particular rules about how you need to do things, Australians by nature generally want to go, well, you can stuff your rules, all right? I'm going to do it the way that I want to do it. And the classic movie example of that is the castle, isn't it? That is the great Australian dream. I mean, the movie's about the great Australian dream owning a house, but the great Australian dream underneath is that you can be a nobody, you can be no one, and you can walk into court with a really dodgy lawyer and you're going to win the day, all right? Because those buff heads up the line don't know what they're talking about. True? And that's, that's the great Australian thing. On um, the Griffith Uni website, you can go home and look this up if you want to verify this, but uh, on the Griffith Uni website it says this about Australians. Most people in Australia think of themselves as your equal regardless of your occupation or income. Is that true? I think it's true. That's kind of the default setting. Most Australians want to be treated as individuals rather than as representatives of a certain class, position or group. They dislike being dependent on others. You see, that's, I think that's pretty true too. This, this was off the Griffith Uni website as well. The really interesting thing about that when it comes to priests is you need a priest. But if the Australian psyche is I don't want to be dependent upon anyone else and everyone's my equal, it just doesn't jive with us very well. And uh, a couple of more things about the Australian uh, psyche and culture that uh, thwart understanding priesthood. One of them's uh, this one, and my dad probably is the greatest proponent of this maybe in the whole of history, all right? And it always had to do with rugby league, but in Australia, the underdog always wins. Well, they always, Australians support the underdog, don't they? You know? I mean, whether they win or not, doesn't matter. That's the great hope of Australians is someone could be an underdog and we just go, well, we're going to back them. And it always used to frustrate the living daylights out of me. And it's a great character quality of my father, but unless it was the Broncos or Queensland, he'd always support the team that was likely to get thrashed, especially if it was the one I... You know, even the one I supported. 
if it was going to win, I always thought, Dad, come and just support the one I support. And he says, no, it's always going to be the underdog. I'm always going to support the underdog. And I can see it in my mum too. There's this thing like, we're going to support the underdog. We're not going to go for the, uh, the really good person. Because in Australia, you don't want to be a tall poppy, do you? Because you just get cut down, all right? And it's a weird thing in Australia. In America, they're a little bit more... Um, inclined to uh, talk about themselves in a favourable way. In Australia, you've almost got to be a klutz about being really good. Isn't that true? Like, you can't actually be really good and just be open about it. You've got to be a klutz about it and not even kind of know that you were and almost kind of stumble into being good. Otherwise, someone's going to cut you down. Can you see there's a, there's a significant cultural problem for Australians actually understanding the need for a priest or a mediator between them and God because of a whole bunch of these cultural facets. The weird thing is early on in uh, human history, and the reason why this is weird is because we don't know it, there was never ever a need for a priest. Before sin, there was no breakage between us and God. There was no wrath. There was no anger and judgment. But with the coming of disobedience, when people turned away from God and decided to worship something else, all of a sudden we're in the midst of a conflict situation and we need a mediator, we need someone in between to actually bring about peace. But Australians, the Australian psyche is, I mean, if you said to an Australian, do you think you could get in a spaceship and fly to the sun? Right? There's part of an Australian psyche that would go, yeah, I'll give that a go. I'll back myself. All right? I'm going to be the... I'm always going to be the 1% or 2% that make it, not the 98% that fail. And there's a sense, probably in the Australian psyche a little bit when it comes to God, is, uh, is God your mate and you can just stroll up to him and talk to him however you want? Well, the Australian sense would be, well, yeah, and he is my mate. I can just stroll up to him and, and, and talk to him and I can call him my mate. I can fly directly into the sun and I'll be fine. All right? Because here's what the problem is, if, if God were like the sun, we would, and Australians are so convinced that we can go directly to God, it's going to end in disaster. The, the Bible says that God's actually a consuming fire. In uh, Hebrews, later in Hebrews, it talks about the fact that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the truth is that one day, uh, some people are going to find out how fearful that actually is. Maybe some of us. Maybe. Hopefully not. See, here's the thing. In Hebrews 10, the writer of Hebrews says, uh, quotes God, God is saying, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This is everyone's greatest problem. Your greatest problem is not your budget. Your greatest problem is not your children. Your greatest problem is not that you don't have enough money. Your greatest problem is not what's going on with your job. Your greatest problem is not what's happened to you in churches before. Your greatest problem is not dot, 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 dot. Your greatest problem is that you and God have got a problem. He's a consuming fire. He hates disobedience and sin when people turn away and you need a mediator. And you're not going to be able to go up and sweet talk God. All right? You're not Dale Kerrigan in the castle. All right? And you're not the dodgy lawyer in the court that can stand up and just say, God, it's just all about the vibe. All right? He's going to go, there's no vibe. All right? He dealt with the vibe. There's no vibe. The only vibe is going to be a burning vibe. All right? Because it says he's a consuming fire. And here's the thing. Unless you, until you actually get that firmly fixed in your mind that your greatest problem 
is between you and God, that God's a consuming fire that's going to take out vengeance and repay people justly according to their deeds, you won't actually get Hebrews, all right? It just won't make sense. You see, the major problem in the world is this problem. You desperately need a go-between. You desperately need someone to go in between you and God to speak on your behalf. I don't know whether you've ever been in a situation where you've had a major conflict with someone and maybe it's someone who's in authority and they are just kind of, maybe you're going to get the sack or maybe you're just going to get in a whole lot of hot water at, at, at work and you desperately, you look for someone who can speak to this person on my behalf to bring about peace. You desperately need it. And Christians, you need it as much as people who are here who don't love Jesus. Everyone desperately needs someone to speak a good word on their behalf. The main problem in the world, everybody's problem, is how to be reconciled to God so that we escape his terrifying wrath of the judgment. That's the main problem. And if you come to church, I mean, I prayed this morning before we started, if you came to church and you thought a dozen other things were your main problems, I prayed this morning that you would see that your main problem is that you've got an issue with God and you desperately need a priest. You desperately need someone to intercede on your behalf. And the biblical answer to this is priesthood and specifically the biblical answer is the priesthood of Jesus. See the reason why there's priests in the Old Testament is that priests are needed to intercede for someone, for someone to come between people and God. They enter in the Old Testament, they enter the holy place where we're not allowed to go. They take sacrifices for us into the holy place. If you're in an Old Testament system, they would go in with the blood of bulls and goats to bring about peace and reconciliation between you and God. You wouldn't get to go in there. You'd be barred from going in there. Because what it is meant to teach you about is it's meant to teach you about your disobedience is a big problem between you and God and it needs to be sorted out and you need a mediator. But here's the good news. God made a way for you to get right with God. That's what he did. You know, he didn't have to. There's no law that God's complying with by making a way for you to be at peace with him. But he did. He provided priests in the Old Testament so the Old Testament people could have peace with God. And for us, we get the great high priest, the son, amen? And you get peace. You get peace because of that. And you ought not take that for granted. True? He doesn't have to... There's no God that's bigger than him that's saying, you must provide a way for these people to be at peace. That's his nature, to provide a way for you to be at peace. So here's a big idea from uh, Hebrews 7 today. You need a priest like this, right? My job today is to convince you that you need a priest like you've got, all right? Someone to bring about peace and to speak on your behalf and right in the first verse of Hebrews 7 uh, the writer brings up this guy Melchizedek again if you've got your Bibles here today they're going to be really helpful okay because we're going to have a look at a few different scriptures about um, about priesthood and about Melchizedek the writer of Hebrews, he keeps bringing up this guy, Melchizedek. You know what's really interesting about Melchizedek is he only shows up, outside of Hebrews, he shows up twice in the whole Bible. All right? He gets three verses in Genesis, and we're going to have a look at those. 
And then he gets one verse in Psalm 103 and that's it. And then the writer of Hebrews gets to chapter 7. He didn't have chapters but he gets to this part of Hebrews and he decides to spend pretty much a whole chapter on him. And he's kept bringing him up. He's been bringing him up the whole way through. So if you go back to Hebrews 5 verse 6, the writer says, uh, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, And then in Hebrews 5 verse 11, He's kind of going, look, I'm really, I'm agitating to get into Melchizedek, but you're not mature enough, you're not ready for this, so we're just going to have to deal with a few other things. You're dull, you're hard of hearing. Um, you need to come back, you need to be careful that you don't end up in a position where you'll never ever repent again. And then at the end of chapter 6, the, uh, the writer of Hebrews, he comes back to Melchizedek again. And his point the whole way through in uh, chapters 5 and 6 is you need to be mature to understand the meaning of Melchizedek. But he actually believes that Melchizedek's going to help struggling people. That's what Hebrews is all about. Hebrews is all about helping people who are thinking about giving up, those who have given up and those who are going strong. He thinks Melchizedek's going to be helpful. Some of us might think Melchizedek's good for a tongue twister, but that's about it. All right? But it is. Melchizedek is for people that need help. So let's hook in. Hebrews 7, 1 to 2. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Really interesting, right? If you think uh, biblical dudes are wusses, all right? Abraham's just returned from slaughtering a bunch of kings, all right? Pretty tanky guy. Part of this was actually on the Bible uh, series mini series the other night so here's what's happened we're going to go and have a bit of a read in genesis but here's what's happened right there's been a battle between about four or five kings uh, one of them's won a bunch of them have lost lot who was kind of connected to uh, abraham was still in sodom all right and so the king who won basically took a whole bunch of people captive including lot and took a whole bunch of stuff right Abraham gets his men together because he wants to go and rescue Lot. He gets about 320 men together and he goes, we're going to go and get them, right? So he goes and kind of sorts it out, all right? That's kind of MA plus rating, but he goes and he kind of sorts it out and obviously he slaughtered a whole bunch of people and had a fight. And uh, on his way back, once he's recovered Lot and the possessions, this really fascinating thing happens in Genesis 14. So if you've got your Bibles there, go to Genesis 14. I'll put it on the screen also, but this is it. Like you're just about to get the full, well, almost the full uh, Old Testament treatment apart from one verse in Psalm 103. You get, this is almost totally Melchizedek. You ready? Don't blink because you miss it. Okay, here we go. Verse 17 to 23. After this, after his return, Abraham's return from the defeat of that guy's name, And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High, and he blessed him, and he said... All right, let me just set this up. So you got Abram, who was later called Abraham. He's got... He's recovered Lot. He's recovered probably other people as well. He's got a whole bunch of stuff, possessions that they've recovered, right? They're walking through a valley to meet the king of Sodom, all right? So the purpose is Abram... And the king of Sodom are going to have a chat, right? And then this random kind of comes out of nowhere with bread and wine and his name's Melchizedek, right? The really interesting thing about it is it's obvious that Abram knows about Melchizedek, okay? So the point here is 
Melchizedek's kind of a random interruption of what's going on. And here's what Melchizedek says. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, we're not going to labour it massively and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. This is probably the best verse about the fact that tithing probably is a all of history kind of thing for people that love God. Alright? Because the common argument is uh, tithing's part of the Levitical law. This is way before it. Alright? And you just got to get the idea here. I mean, you imagine, Ab- Abram probably lost a few of his guys when they went to recover Lot and the possessions. Alright? You would think the number one priority for uh, Abram is uh, maybe we, we just got to look after these guys' families, give them some of the stuff that we've recovered. It's not. All right? Abram's number one gig here is he's going, I'm going to give the best 10% to Melchizedek. All right? And I think, without a doubt, that Abram was giving it. That was his paying, paying homage to God. And so here's the thing. If you... <laughs> This is just a little side note. If you say, I don't have enough money left to give to God, you're not thinking biblically, all right? And you're not thinking the way that God wants you to think about money. You've got it upside down, all right? Basically, the thing biblically is you, you, you pull all your money before you spend any of it and the best 10% for Abram, he gives away, all right? So you start with God's bit, and then everyone else gets their share. And one of the really cool things, and obviously you all they get the opportunity to do this, but one of the cool things about uh, working in the school here and uh, working for, um, well, not working, well, I guess we are working, but we're not getting paid for it, but actually attending the project and running the project is anyone who's a school member can actually salary sacrifice their tithe into the church, right? And the best thing, I mean, obviously there's a bit of a tax advantage with that, right? But here's the really, really cool thing about it is I... I just feel really great about the fact that the first person who gets a shot at it is God, you know? Because for most of my working life, the tax man had a shot at it first <laughs> and then I, I gave after that. And it just, honestly, as a principal thing, I just love the idea that God gets a shot at it before the tax man gets it, all right? That, maybe that's just me, but I, I feel uh, really happy about that. So that's a little sidebar, right? And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that that I would not take a thread or sandal strap of anything that is yours, lest you should say I've made Abram rich. So here's the thing. King of Sodom says uh, to Abram, give me the people and you can keep the stuff. He goes, no, I'm not going to keep the stuff. All right, because I don't want you to go around taking the glory for the fact that I've got all this stuff. I want God to get all the glory. All right, really interesting thing. But what's fascinating about it is uh, if if you look there, Melchizedek's just he's just kind of random. He's just kind of chimed in for a couple of verses and then he disappears again. And it's almost like you know, thanks for the bread and wine. Now we're back to the conversation. Can you just say excuse me next time before you interrupt us? It's almost got that kind of feel about it. Um, so what I want to do is just go through five weird facts about Melchizedek. All right, here we go. Melchizedek shows up in an awkward place. He's an interruption. There's the first one. We've done that. The second one is this. The brevity of his mention is amazing biblically. All right? 
Now, the big idea in Hebrews, and we'll get to this in a minute, is if Abram gave tithes to Melchizedek, right, he's basically saying that Melchizedek is greater than he. And in terms of Old Testament biblical characters, Abraham is the father of all of us, father of uh, literally the descendants, the physical descendants of Israel, but he's the father of everyone by faith now who follows Christ. So for Abram to be giving tithes to Melchizedek tells you that Melchizedek, he ranks super, super, super high, all right? And it's just weird, all right? I hope you're with me. It is just weird that you got this guy who ranks so incredibly highly and he gets like two or three verses. He kind of shows up and then he's gone. He just go, <laughs> what's going on? His name's peculiar, all right? Anyone agree with that? Some of you guys are going, I came to church to get a name for my child who's going to be born, you know, and I'm, thank the Lord, you know, it's going to be Melchizedek, right? The kid's going to be known Mel for the rest of his life, right? Because no one will be able to say the rest of it very quickly. It's weird, right? And what's really interesting about his name is Melchizedek gets called the king of Salem and the commentators suggest that it's the king of Salem they actually suggest that Salem could well be Jerusalem, right? But the big idea here is that Salem means peace, king of peace. And also in uh, Hebrews, I think it is, it talks about the fact that he's the king of righteousness. Really, really interesting names because when you go to Isaiah 53 and you look at the, the prophecy about Jesus coming that was written about 800 years before he came, it talks about Jesus being the king of righteousness and the king of peace, all right? It's just really super interesting. And who knows that our world could do with some more peace? True? I mean, who knows that we could do with some more peace? And I'm not just even talking about peace in the midst of conflict. I mean, yesterday I was all, I was on the ride on in the backyard doing some mowing and um, I was all kind of knotted up about something. I don't know. I don't know whether that ever happens to you, but to me. Sometimes I'd go through little periods of time where I just think I've got no peace on the inside. It's really, so you know, I know what I'm talking about. It's, it's difficult to handle when, you've got, when you haven't got any peace, you know. And so I'm riding on, on the mower. You might think this is a dumb little story, and that's okay if you do, but I'm riding on the mower, and, you know, I looked up on the power lines above me, and, you know, what was sitting up on the power lines was a kookaburra. And one thing I've been doing lately, we're out at Dolby, boys are out at Dolby playing rugby yesterday, but one thing I've been doing a little bit lately, and I'm not a bird watcher, but I've just been watching birds a little bit. All right? That's weird. What's this got to do with Melchizedek? Well, it will in a minute, maybe. But I'm, I'm on the mower and I'm, I, I haven't got any peace on the inside. And I look up and there's a kookaburra, you know? And my instant question in my head was, what's he doing? Or she? What's it doing? And you know what it was doing? Nothing. It, honestly, it was just sitting there. It's just sitting there, right? And the feathers are ruffling a bit because it was a southwesterly blowing yesterday. And it's just sitting there. And I'm just going, you know, and I was worried about some stuff, right? On the inside. And that was kind of what was nodding me up. I just, I thought, that kookaburra doesn't feel the need to be anywhere in particular, all right? It probably doesn't even know it's on a 33,000 volt line, all right? <laughs> and if it touched the ground simultaneously, we wouldn't, be able to find it, all right? It would just be gone. And you know, the scripture that came into my head was that one uh, in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus 
that Jesus said. You know, he says, even the birds of the air. He said, I take care of the birds of the air. They don't need to worry about getting stuff and organising food. I look after them. And I looked up, honestly, and maybe it's just, um, you could say my hermeneutics and my exegesis of a kookaburra is a bit short of the mark. But I looked up and I just thought, I don't think he's worried. He's just not worried. You know, and yesterday there was this great big flock of pigeons out at uh, Dolby, you know, and they were just flying around. And that happened last time we were out at Dolby and I just thought, what are they doing? Why are they doing that? Well, because it's fun, probably. And they're just enjoying themselves. And this kookaburra, he wasn't, I'd ask my boys later, I said, I saw a kookaburra out there, what do you reckon he was doing? They go, he was laughing. I said, no, he was just sitting there. And, and it was, a, for me, it was, a, it was a picture of serenity and peace. And you just need to know that Melchizedek is the kind of character he is because Jesus is the fulfilment and he's actually better than Melchizedek. So if Melchizedek's the king of peace, what kind of peace does, uh, does Jesus bring? There you go. That was my first kookaburra illustration. But it's interesting. King of righteousness, king of peace. Those are his titles. And the last one there is uh, the greatness. The greatness of Melchizedek is a... Uh, is a bizarre kind of uh, thing, given how much time he actually gets. So the question, obviously, is if he's so great, why is there so much silence and mystery about him? Why don't we actually hear more about him? You see, every time you hear about someone in the Old Testament, you hear about their genealogy, don't you? You hear about who they were descendants of and who their descendants were. We hear about when they were born and when they died. Uh, You can trace Joseph back to Adam, all right? You can, you can trace David's genealogy, but the thing with Melchizedek is you just can't trace his genealogy. You're just going, we don't know where he came from and we don't know where he went. You see, anyone who's anyone in the Old Testament has got a genealogy, except Melchizedek, who's the top of the pile, by the way, in the Old Testament. See, there's no mention of his father, his mother, his genealogy. There's only mention of his contact with uh, Abram, Abram obviously knew about him because he gave him a tithe. Um, And you know what that does is that actually makes him a perfect type of Christ. And I want to read, uh, if you go back to Hebrews 7 in your Bibles, starting at verse 2. He is first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. And then he is also King of Salem, that is King of Peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, note what the author's just uh, written there. You notice he says, resembling the Son of God. Christ does not resemble Melchizedek. Melchizedek resembles Christ. He's like Christ, all right? Just not as good, all right? And if you notice the whole way through Hebrews, the author keeps rolling out people that are really, really the heroes, right? And then he goes, well, Jesus is better. Better than angels, right? Better than a whole line of people that he's covered in, in, in the book of Hebrews. And uh, some people, I'll just throw this out there, if you're a theology nut, all right, you can just go and just trip out on this one, okay? There's a bunch of different ideas about who Melchizedek is. Some people think he might be an angel, some people think he's some kind of theophany where uh, Jesus has actually come in person. Uh, there's a bunch of good reasons why I don't think they're the case. I just think the Bible is intentionally silent on his genealogy, both before him and after him, because 
He's a type of Christ. And because Christ has got a similar kind of genealogy, in a sense he comes out of nowhere. But he's not coming out of nowhere because he's lived forever. He resembles the Son of God. You see, if you look in the Old Testament, you see David, and David's kind of a type of Jesus, right? You get this theological idea where someone's like Christ. So David's a type of Jesus. And then you've got Joseph in the Old Testament who uh, kind of got unfairly treated and he ends up coming through and saving everyone through his unfair treatment. And he's a type of Christ. And even in Romans chapter 5, if you read Romans chapter 5, it says that Adam is a type of Christ. One sin made everyone sinners, so one man's righteousness is going to make everyone's, everyone righteous. So it's like Adam and Jesus are kind of types of each other, but they're inverted. I think, just so that you know, I think Melchizedek actually had parents. All right? I think he was actually born, and I think he actually died. And I think in verse 3... When it says there he has neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues forever. I don't think the author is actually saying that Melchizedek um, was never born and never died. I think what he's really talking about, he's talking about in the, in the biblical record um, that he didn't start and he didn't finish in the biblical record, so he's always kind of been there. And in that way, he's actually like Christ. What's really interesting about uh, Melchizedek, right, is that he's a king and he's a priest and you weren't allowed to do both in the Old Testament system. You just weren't allowed to do it. So he was a unique individual in the Old Testament system. Another thing that was really interesting is you could only be a priest if you're of the line of Levi, all right? Now, in uh, 800 BC, this is a bit of a history lesson today, are you okay? I promise I'll finish on time today. In the Old Testament, what happened is the Israelites didn't do what they were supposed to do. God sent a bunch of prophets, said, don't do this stuff, return to God, or he's going to kind of punish you and judge you. They didn't return to him. He gave them lots and lots of warnings, all right? It's kind of like your final warning. He didn't say it was their final warning, but he kind of gave their final warning a whole bunch of times. Um, And then in the end, he actually sent them into exile into Babylon. And when some of the Jews started coming back from exile in Babylon... What uh, actually happened is they were trying to work out who was going to be a priest, all right? And what was really interesting about that is um, the ones that they couldn't prove were descendants of Levi weren't allowed to be priests. So there were some, obviously some people there, some guys there who were descendants of uh, Levi or felt very strongly that they were, but because they couldn't prove it, you didn't get a Guernsey to be a priest because you couldn't prove that you're a descendant. Because the big idea is when you, whenever you talk about priesthood, you've got to be able to trace them back to their lineage. But at the end of the day, here's the problem here. Melchizedek has no genealogy. It's not based on bloodlines. We don't know where he came from or where he goes. There's no in- indication of his death, but that's exactly like Jesus because Jesus always lives to make intercession. You see, it's an interesting thing about Jesus. Does anyone know what tribe Jesus was a descendant of, officially? Does anyone know? Judah. That's not the priestly tribe. All right? The priestly tribe is Levi. All right? But you can see how Jesus is a bit like Melchizedek, or Melchizedek's a bit like Jesus, because he's coming from a different lineage, and he occupies priest and king at the same time. Let's keep reading. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. So the the big idea there is whoever you're tied to is greater than you. 
And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descendant descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in other case, by him of whom it is testified that he lives. Let me summarise this really quickly. The law went like this. If you're a Levite, everyone else gave you a tenth and that's how you lived. That's what the law was. That's just what you do. All right? That's how the Old Testament Levitical law actually worked. And what this guy... Uh, just have a look at the last sentence there. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek m- met him. I'm not going to go into the details about how that works. Right, but here's the thing, Levi's a descendant of Abraham and the writer of Hebrews is saying that Levi, the priest who deserves to get tithes and money from people, paid tithes to Melchizedek, which is saying, how good's Melchizedek? All right? If the head guy of the Old Testament priesthood who deserves to get all this money from people and, and they should give their tithes to him, if he's paying tithes to someone, how much better is the person he's paying tithes to? And you see that reference there again toward the end of that section there about it's testified that he lives, he continues to live. Let's keep going. Are you going okay? Is this, it's a bit of a kind of history lesson a bit today. I hope it kind of makes sense a bit. Uh, 11 to 16. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. He's just saying... There's never been priests come out of Judah, all right? In fact, if you look at uh, King Saul in the Old Testament, whenever a king in the Old Testament decides that they're actually going to play a priestly role, they get into a whole bunch of trouble, all right? There was a, uh, a time in the Old Testament where Saul was waiting on Samuel, I think it was, to come and offer the sacrifice, and he was taking too long, all right? So he just thought, well, I'll get it done. So he offered it, and Samuel arrives, and Samuel just jams him. And he just says, that's it, man. You lose the, uh, the kingdom. You've lost your, your kingship from uh, Israel because you played a priestly role. So it's just really weird and bizarre to have a, a priest who's a king as well. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of a Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, his descendants, or his ancestors, but by the power of an indestructible life. So can you see this? The writer's just saying the Bible's silent about beginning and ending for Melchizedek and he's just like Christ because he's a priest and he's a king and the reason why the Bible's really silent on Melchizedek is he wants you to know that Jesus is a kind of priest like Melchizedek and there's a sense in which he didn't start and he didn't finish. He's just always been and he always will be. And you can see this in uh, Psalm 110 verse 4. This is about a thousand years before Jesus came. It says in Psalm 110 verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A thousand years before Jesus comes 
a psalmist writes, there's a priest and a king coming who follows in the order of Melchizedek. There's a new deal coming, all right? That's good for you, right? None of you brought goats or pigs. Well, you didn't sacrifice pigs. Goats or bulls, that would be really bad. In fact, that's, that was one of the horrors of the Old Testament, wasn't it, when uh, a foreign king slaughtered some pigs in the temple, all right? But none of you brought goats or pigeons or, or bulls to church or rams to church to slaughter. I mean, imagine that. I would be known as a local butcher, all right? And you'd be livestock owners, right? Because you'd have to bring stuff in to sort things out every time that you got something wrong. But Jesus is the best priest ever because he has an indestructible life. You remember back in verse 8 on the previous screen, it talks about it's testified that he lives. You see, Jesus never dies. He never had to be made alive, just like Melchizedek, the record of Melchizedek in the Bible. And the truth is that the Old Testament kind of covenant needs to give way to a new deal, a new covenant. And your salvation, and here's where it gets really exciting. I'm going to get a little bit more animated here. You need a priest like Melchizedek, all right? You need Jesus to come along and to help you and to intercede for you like Melchizedek. You need someone who can save to the uttermost, all right? This is uh, in verse 25 of Hebrews chapter 7. Read this. Everything that the writer's been saying, he started with Melchizedek, and this is his point for you today. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You need a priest like this. You need a priest that's not going to get tired and needs to lie down and have a sleep. You need a priest that doesn't die. You need a priest who's always going to be there. You need a priest that's not going to sleep with the people who serve in church like what happened in the Old Testament. You need a priest who's never ever going to sin that you can always trust in. You need one that lives forever. And Gentiles, of which we all are, non-Jews are Gentiles, we forget that. We forget that you don't go to God unless you've got a priest. You see, there's been centuries of priests in the Old Testament. In fact, they said, according to the stats here, it looks like there's about 86 high priests in the Old Testament. But you know what? They never ever got people in with God. They never ever ultimately did it because they were never ever good enough to get us in because what was needed, you needed someone and I needed someone who was never going to die, who was always going to be there, someone who didn't have to go in and offer a sacrifice for their own mess before they deal with yours. You need someone who can walk in and just deal with it. And to be saved and to be God's You need to be saved every second, don't you? Every single moment. God's intercession, Jesus' intercession of you needs to be happening continually all the time. If he stops because he's got to lie down and have a sleep, if he's that kind of priest, you're going to be in trouble, all right? You want to make sure you're on some kind of drug for those eight hours when he's out to it, true? Because it's going to get really messy because you need intercession. You need someone to speak on your behalf all of the time. You need someone to pray to the Father on your behalf. You see, we've got two big problems, don't we? We've got innate weakness and we've got ongoing sin and disobedience against God. And we need help. And you need a priest like this. 
At the end of the day, drawing near to God happens through Christ being our priest and continuing intercession happens by Christ. It's a bit of a vicious circle. Check this scripture out in uh, Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? There's two answers to that. Obviously, Paul means no one. But we know at another level, oh, there's lots of charges that people could bring against us, true? And there's a, I mean, we'd, there's an angel that wanted to make himself the centre and he's the devil and he's got his guns loaded, right? And he wants to accuse people of stuff. And who knows that you've got some stuff that someone could accuse you of? True? You do, all right? I don't even know you that well and you do, okay? Don't be insulted by that. That's, I know that because God says that. Everyone's got stuff that they could be accused of. But the point here is this. In, in Romans 8, it is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is doing what? Interceding for you. Because he never ever dies, he can keep interceding for you. You see, Jesus intercedes when you become a Christian. When you decide to put your trust, he intercedes and he makes things right between him and the Father. But it's clear here that in Hebrews and also in Romans that he doesn't stop once you become a Christian. He continues his intercession. He continues to speak a good word for you. And it's not like, I reckon a lot of my life I've thought it's kind of like Jesus and God the Father in heaven, right? Because God the Father is the one that needs to punish sin, right? And he's going to pour wrath out upon sin. So in a sense you kind of think, is God saving us from the devil? Well, in a sense, Jesus is kind of saving us from the just punishment that God the Father would pour out. And probably in my head, I've often thought um, about God that this kind of intercession is a bit like, I do something wrong, God gets angry, and Jesus calms him down. <laughs> All right? It's kind of, he's got the spiritual valium, you know, just a, you know, let's just bring it down. All right? But I don't think it's like that. God's not bipolar. Okay? He just isn't. Okay? I think what's going on is Jesus continually, perpetually intercedes for us and speaks to the Father on our behalf so that the Father's constantly satisfied. Constantly. Get, like, it's, it's going to be a proportion of you on the inside that sense with God this constant dissatisfaction that God's not happy with you. Right? If you've got that kind of personality that tends toward that, and maybe most of us have got a little bit of that, but if you've got that kind of personality where you kind of go, yeah, I think God's he's, he's, he's angry with me, cranky with me, um, down on me, I shouldn't have done that, he's watching me and he's going to think about that for the next 20 minutes, at least, maybe the next 20 days, until I do something good to cancel it out. And you get that whole kind of thing going on, on the inside. You, you know, if you, I'm just telling you, if you think that way, you're not thinking Jesus interceding for you. All right, because Jesus interceding for you is that. Can you imagine that Jesus is up there right now, and He's actually saying a good word to His Father on behalf of you by His death, so that His Dad never gets cranky with you? Is that not good? I mean, like maybe someone should be jumping out of the out of their seats right now. Isn't that jumping out of your seats good? You don't you you don't have to worry about that, and and it's like. 
It's not like he's a good priest who's going to die in 50 years. I mean, would you imagine being in the Old Testament system and a guy comes along like that and he's got the skill. He's a really skilled priest, right? And he's a, man, he's a smooth talker. He's your PR guy and he's talking to God and he's keeping God really, really happy. And you just kind of go, oh, this is so good. And then he gets sick and you just go, oh, no, all right? This is going to be terrible. He's going to disappear. It's like, what's the new guy going to be like? All right? That's going to be your next question. He's not going to know me as well. He's not going to be able to speak on my behalf as well. He's not going to defend me as well. Maybe he doesn't even like me, the next guy. Maybe he's going to go to God the Father and he's going to go, I'm just doing this because I've got to. All right? The guy's an idiot, right? But if you can wrangle something for him, that'd be nice. All right? That's not what's going on. It's like there's never going to be an end. This is the whole Melchizedek lesson out of chapter 7 is, Jesus is better than him. He didn't start and he's not going to finish. He's just always going to be there and he's always going to be speaking a positive word. And some of you right now, you need to know that God in Jesus is speaking to his dad a positive word for you because you just messed it up or you just realise that you messed some stuff up. You with me? And you need to know positive word. And you need to know, I think that God the Father is not, I was really cranky with you, all right? But there's this continual thing going on. God is constantly satisfied because Jesus speaks a good word on your behalf. Don't think about sequential time when it comes to the way that Jesus intercedes. How's he doing it? I don't know. Gestures, words, I don't know. I just know it's happening. And you know what? You know one of the things I reckon he's saying? If you love him and you've given your life to him, one of the things he's going to be saying is that you're his. Isn't that cool? Because isn't that, isn't that just an instinctive kind of thing that often we get when we fail is we just kind of go, I'm not good enough to be his. True? I didn't get that right. And probably deserve a bit of punishment or a bit of... A harsh word. But I think one of the things he's saying is he's going, he's mine. And because he's mine, Father, he's yours. He's not angry and then appeased. He's always appeased. You see, the death of of, of Christ on the cross is a constant fragrance for his Father to be pleased. You remember uh, Peter? Jesus speaking to Peter in Luke 22, maybe you remember that. It says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. What does Jesus say? But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. You know what he says next? He says, and when you have turned again. It's like when Jesus intercedes, it's a certainty. I'm going to intercede for you. You're going to blow out. And when you've turned, you're going to strengthen your brothers. You see, every piece of grace that you've ever got, I think you're going to find out that Jesus is interceding for you. Every encouragement that you got from someone else in the church, Jesus interceded. Every recipient of the grace, uh, of the gifts of God from another person in the church, Jesus will be interceding. He's in there behind it. Every time you repented, he's interceding for you. Every time your pride smashed, he's interceding for you. Every time you blow it and God picks you up again, he's interceding for you. He's just doing it all the time. 
And you might say, well, there's only one of him. <laughs> and there's millions of us. How's he going to get it done? Well, he's God. And he's way better than Melchizedek. All right? Those two things alone, you're fine. Okay? He can get that one done. That's no dramas at all. There's no trial that's too big that the interceding Christ can't help you. He's not dying. He's not going to die. He's not sleeping with the women somewhere and he's not sleeping. So let me finish with this. Do you have someone interceding for you? Do you? If uh, you follow Christ and you belong to him, you know what? You do. But chances are in a group this size, maybe there's some people who, who don't. And I'd say to the people who don't, you need someone to speak a good word on your behalf. You need someone to intercede for you. I just want to know, Nathan, if you just come down the front. I'm just going to pray in a minute. And, um, you know, it's going to be an opportunity for you to come forward if you want to come forward. Because it's pretty clear, um, there's, there's a couple of levels of people interceding or, or intercession that you can have. This is the top level, all right? This level makes every other level work, okay? But there's also a level of intercession that people can have for each other. People can come and intercede on behalf of each other. And look, if, if you don't love Jesus, you need an intercessor. And today would be a really good day to get one. All right, a really good day. True, amen. You know what I'm talking about? You get one, all right. But you know, some of you maybe there's a few things going on for you, and uh, you just go, Whoa, man, do I just need to know right now that I've got an intercessor for me in Christ speaking a good word on my behalf? Man, do I need that right now? And maybe you need someone to pray with you, all right, and to know that maybe you know, sometimes in life you can uh, you cannot know what to pray. You know, you can, you can just go through some stuff and you just kind of go, I don't even know what to say here. And you just need someone else to just say it for you or say something for you. And that's intercession. And so I guess uh, in a minute, I'm just going to pray for all of us. And I'd, I'll invite you in a minute to stand with me if uh, you've just got a really keen sense of your need for... Christ to intercede and to speak a good word on your behalf. And if you're, uh, you'd like someone to pray with you down the front, uh, we'll have some people down here that can pray with you. If today's going to be the day that you get an intercessor, come down the front. If, you, if you're not following Jesus, if, if he's not... See, the thing is, if you're not following him, he's not speaking on your behalf, right? He's just not. Because he doesn't speak on behalf. Ultimately, he's not... In terms of sustenance, sustaining, enduring kind of intercession, he's not speaking on your behalf unless you belong to him. 
And today would be a, there'd be no better day than to get an intercessor today like Christ. True? It would speak on your behalf. And maybe there's some stuff going on in your life and you need someone to pray with you, pray for you. Uh, we'd love to do that down the front and intercede for you. Because you know the answer is always yes. All right? That's what Corinthians says. Every promise of God is yes in Christ. Look, I'm going to pray. And uh, if you, honestly, if, if you just, if I just totally bamboozled you and confused you, that's fine. All right? And no one's going to look down on you for staying seated if you want to stay seated. But if you've got this keen sense now that you desperately need someone who never started his days and will never end his days, he, he, if he doesn't intercede for you, you're a goner. I'm going to, I'll pray for you, all right? And I'll pray. So uh, if, if you, look, if you don't feel it that keenly, that's okay, all right? We, we're okay for people not taking communion because they're not in the right place. We're okay. You just be where you're at, all right? And let God do whatever he wants to do inside of you. So uh, if you feel... God, I desperately need you to intercede for me. And maybe you've got a specific area that you need God to intercede for. Why don't you stand with me now? If you, if you don't love him and you, and you want to love him, you can stand up also. I'm just going to pray. Oh, God, we need... Jesus, we need an intercessor like you. We need one that doesn't mess up, hasn't got a mess. We need one that's not moody, one that's not tired, one that's not too busy. We need one that cares, that loves, that gets involved. So Jesus, we just offer to you our word of thanks today for speaking your good word on our behalf we didn't earn it truth is we didn't even ask you for it we didn't even ask you to do it from the very beginning when you interceded for us and actually turned our hearts around so that we became yours we never asked you for that but you did it and you helped us and you keep doing it you keep interceding for us So God, you know the, uh, the hearts of everyone who stands with me now. Our hope is in you. We thank you, God, that we'll never, ever be put to shame. That's what your word says. Those who hope in you will never, ever be put to shame.